Welcome to the AO Spine Research Top 10 podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. In this episode, we're going to be hearing about the number one priority, raising awareness. We're going to be talking to spine surgeons, Dr. Michael Failings and Dr. Mark Cotter, and family practitioner, Dr. James Milligan, as well as Tammy Blizzard, who's a person living with cervical myelopathy. My name's Dr. Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and founder of myelopathy.org. My name is Dr. Michelle Starkey. I'm a scientist and director of myelopathy.org. This is AO Spine Top 10 with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. very warm welcome to the first of 10 episodes covering the AO Spine top 10 research priorities. So recode DCM, meaning research objectives and common data elements for DCM. Ben, perhaps you could give us a little bit of background um, for those who are listening for the first time. So this is one of the objectives of the AO Spine recode DCM initiative, uh, a collective of uh, people from around the world who work and live with degenerative cervical myelopathy who are trying to provide some guidance and recommendations that hopefully can help accelerate knowledge discovery that, that can change outcomes. And part of that involved identifying the top research priorities, because if we consolidate our efforts, our energy, the resources onto a few questions, hopefully we're more likely to, to get them solved sooner. So today we're going to be focusing on the first priority, which is raising awareness, or as the full research question states, what strategies can increase awareness and understanding of DCM amongst healthcare professionals and the public? And can these strategies help improve timely diagnosis and management of DCM? And so to our first guest, uh, Dr. Michael Failings, somebody who really needs no introduction, has been at the heart of efforts to increase awareness of myelopathy over the last 25 years, and in fact was recently acknowledged as the most published author in the field. And I started by asking him, what is DCM and why do we need to raise awareness? DCM is referred to more formally as degenerative cervical myelopathy. It's the commonest form of spinal cord impairment in the world. It's caused by degenerative arthritic and congenital conditions in the cervical spine that cause progressive compression of the uh, cervical spinal cord. In many patients, it's a bit silent because it results in discoordination of walking, which many people often uh, misinterpret or are uh, somewhat embarrassed to admit. It then uh, often results in hand dysfunction. Sometimes people have neck pain and they're misdiagnosed as simply having arthritis of the cervical spine. And the definitive uh, test to make the diagnosis is a magnetic resonance scan. It's important to pick up the diagnosis at an early stage because intervention, which is principally surgery, results in um, substantial improvement in the majority of cases and if done at an early stage can restore excellent health to individuals with DCM. But if DCM is allowed to progress it can result in unrelenting and severe neurological impairment and a severe pain and disability. The surgery is well established and it's very safe. Previously it 
was thought that the best we could achieve with surgery was to halt the progression of the condition. We now recognize that the majority of patients, about 80%, will experience substantial improvement. It was also previously thought that the timing of surgical intervention wasn't that important because DCM was felt to progress rather slowly and that it was a relatively benign condition. We would now recognize that the timing of intervention is actually quite important. And it's, it's hard to say in every patient what the precise time frame is. And it would be uh, expeditious and better for patient management if we could figure out which of those patients need surgery at an earlier stage. You know, in order to be able to make those decisions, keep those options open, the key thing is to get the, the diagnosis as early as, as possible. That's correct. The misdiagnosis of DCM, in my view, is a major issue. So uh, about half of patients present with pain, and the majority of these people have neck pain, but there's often a lack of realization on the part of the GP or the primary care practitioner about the other symptoms and signs to watch for. And patients with DCM are sometimes uh, misdiagnosed as having a benign arthritic condition in the neck. And, and so this is a, a case where primary care practitioners need to be made aware. Patients need to be uh, made aware of the symptoms and signs to watch out for as well. So a 50-year-old individual who can no longer walk properly needs medical attention. This, and this isn't just something to be sloughed off. And people who have bilateral hand symptoms shouldn't just assume that this is something benign like carpal tunnel syndrome, should maybe be thinking about the possibility of the diagnosis of DCM. And so there are various scenarios that can be taught to professionals as well as to the general public to raise awareness. And this is much like other situations, for example, the, the warning signs of stroke or myocardial infarction. There were significant uh, public awareness campaigns that occurred that have had an important impact in terms of the diagnosis and treatment. DCM is a major public health issue, and it needs to be prioritized in a similar way. Why do you think DCM has fallen under the radar, um, you know, given it is a common and very disabling condition? I think for a variety of reasons. So one is that until the uh, widespread use of magnetic resonance imaging, the diagnosis of DCM was often delayed. A CAT scan will really show the arthritic changes in the cervical spine, but they won't disclose accurately the amount of spinal cord compression. So the advent of widespread use of magnetic resonance imaging has been a major positive thing that has occurred. In addition, 20 years ago or so, the, the treatments for DCM were not as advanced as they are now. The outcomes of surgery may not have been as favorable as they are now. And so there was probably an understandable reluctance on the part of primary care doctors or neurologists to refer patients for surgical treatment. And then I think the third case is that, in general, in my view, degenerative spinal conditions have not necessarily been prioritized by public health care systems. They've been viewed as being fairly benign conditions that aren't really too important, but we now recognize 
that degenerative spine conditions are incredibly disabling for people and can, in general, be managed quite effectively. So it was a very interesting interview, as always, with uh, Dr. Failings. And lots of interesting points came out of that. I think um, for me, the first one was really that myelopathy is much more common than people realize. I think that's right. But that really has got to change if we're to make a difference, because unless people can be, be diagnosed early enough, then we cannot offer treatment any sooner. We can't see the maximum benefit of our, of our operations. And I think that's a, an issue that should resonate with, with spinal surgeons around the world. So another thing that was very interesting that came out of the discussion was that there's lots of people that suffer with very mild myelopathy that do eventually need surgery. So we do need to have an idea of those people and to be following up with them. But of course, that's a group that have much subtler symptoms, much more difficult to pick up. And I think the one of the reasons it's a major knowledge gap is that we're probably not detecting those individuals to be able to study. Uh, and that obviously has got to change if we can offer treatment at the right time. So Dr. Failings was answering these types of questions, which of course is exactly what happened in the RICO project. You'll know yourself the value and, and the opportunity for, for myelopathy.org to be to be partnering with, with professionals and trying to you know, co-produce these solutions. Yeah, and I think what's been really important from our side is the bringing together of all the different groups, because whilst surgeons have obviously a huge amount of experience of DCM, so do the people living with it. And I think hearing their stories and you know what's really important to them is both key to the charity, but then key to driving you know these priorities and, and what people should be focusing on in terms of their research and, and finding out more information. I mean, it's a really important perspective and I think it really comes through with this question in, as an example because when these were prioritised before the final consensus meeting, it was really the people living with the condition that were really pushing this as a research priority. And I believe that you spoke to, to one of those who are in the room really campaigning for this question, Michelle. Yes, I spoke to Tammy Blizzard, who is a person living with myelopathy. And I asked her, from her perspective, why is it so important that we raise awareness both within the general public and also medical professionals? With the general public, one of the things I thought of was um, multiple sclerosis, which I thought I might have had because our symptoms are, have such a strong crossover. We, you know, we stumble, we drop things, uh, numbness and all these other issues. You tell somebody that you have multiple sclerosis and they they are quite aware of it and the struggles that those people deal with and that it's a lifelong condition that's it changes everything about your life and day-to-day -day activities. But you tell somebody that you have myelopathy and their eyes glaze over and many of them don't really want to know or don't have time to know and they they have no understanding of it. My big concern is for practitioners to know it, especially the general practitioners, those first people that you're going to see when you're not sure why you're dropping things or why you're stumbling or why you're so tired all the time. Because if they don't recognize those symptoms and they don't either do a workup for you or refer you to a specialist, you're not going to get diagnosed. So that first seed of spreading awareness is the most important thing. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. It, you know, I think it it's super important, and uh, it's one of the reasons why 
I'm very interested in working with the charity and, you know, making this our main priority. I saw my um, GP on, it was around November 5th. And the nurse commented how slow I was walking. And I said, yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. And then he tested my reflexes and I was about as hyper reflexive as you can get. And I don't know if he didn't realize it was hyper-reflexive, if he didn't document it, if he blew it off. I don't know. But I had two huge symptoms of myelopathy that day I saw him. And if he had worked on that and acknowledged it, I tend to think I would have gotten an MRI much sooner. I think my GP being more knowledgeable would have made a drastic difference in my recovery because I I went downhill in six weeks. So my first symptoms of leg spasticity started mid-October and I had surgery beginning of December. So one month to me, I think would have changed my life. How do you think your surgeons would have benefited if awareness of the condition had been improved around the time you were diagnosed, Tammy? The one symptom that really stands out is the heavy legs and the fatigued legs, which was my first symptom that I had. But I'm, I'm very surprised that some surgeons don't realize how myelopathy can in, impact the entire body below the point of compression. The surgeons um, might be a little bit more aggressive in trying to get it treated. I think I got worse so quickly because it was a perfect storm. I was a new manager as a veterinarian. I just got it promoted to managing two clinics. And then my colleague went on maternity leave, so I was handling the clinic on my own. And I don't turn anything down. I want to do what's best for the animals. And I, I worked extremely hard, um, even if I was a normal person. Uh, and I truly feel that being an overachiever without a diagnosis is what caused my poor recovery. Yeah, because you were pushing yourself right at the time when you should have probably been taking it easy. So I know that you're involved with the Facebook myelopathy support group as a sort of advocacy group and support group for people with myelopathy. So why do you think it's so important to get involved in that type of thing? Why are those types of organizations and groups so important? I cannot even imagine having this condition 20 or 30 years ago um, and being isolated, feeling like you're the only one and to have other people that you communicate with and find out what their normal is, that really, you know, having these issues with your arms locking up or the fatigue or the neck pain is just all part of the roller coaster, especially in that just post-operative time, which is really a, a huge roller coaster of ups and downs, uh, plays on your emotions and your physical body. And it's, it's really hard to cope with. Having people that you don't need to explain anything to because they completely understand where you're coming from immediately. That must be really reassuring. Yes. I think my biggest step was last fall, I came to the realization that I'm not, I'm not going to go back to work. You know, the last four years before that, I constantly had a, well, if I get another surgery, I'll do better. If I get the baclofen pump, I'll do better. If I deal with my CSF leak, I'll do better. If I do physical therapy, if I mess with my drugs, and everything was if, 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 and nothing ever worked. And once I finally said, I'm not going back to work, 
I'm not going to completely write it off. Maybe I'll go back part-time in 10 years, but that's no longer my goal. My goal now is to learn what I can do instead of focusing on what I can't do and try to find some new joys in life and get some worth and enjoyment from that versus constantly concentrating on how to get back to what was my old normal. Yeah, but I guess that takes, like you say, it takes a long time to come to terms with, doesn't it? Yes, it did. Four years for me, but it was, it was so freeing. I mean, it was sad. Um, It's kind of sad letting go of a career. It took 10 years of college and you had worked in 15 years, but it was very freeing. So Tammy, in your view, what are the current barriers to raising awareness for DCM? I think the biggest one, especially right now, is that people have information fatigue. Maybe that would be the term for it. We always hear about other diseases that are advertised a little bit better, like MS or Alzheimer's or dementia or other diseases. People just aren't always interested in being open to learning about new issues. So it's still massively important, despite what's going on, that we we still fight to raise awareness. Yes, absolutely. So I think it's important to recognise that Tammy's story did have quite a quick progression. That's not necessarily the case in everyone. But it really does highlight that in certain people, you know, days, weeks can make an awfully big difference. And that powerful quote, she says, you know, one month to me would have changed my life. And I think, unfortunately, she lost her career to DCM as well. And I think from the medical professional side, knowing what these symptoms are and how they come together in DCM is really important in terms of raising awareness within the community, as well as those that are suffering with it. That's right. And I think, you know, Tammy's experience also suggests there's going to be many challenges here because, you know, she is a clinical practitioner, albeit veterinary as opposed to human health. You know, she'll have been having a fairly educated, scientific conversation with her healthcare professionals. And still, she had the struggles with with getting a diagnosis. And it was interesting, actually, that she, she actually thought initially she was developing multiple sclerosis. Yeah, that's right. And it's an interesting comparison that she makes. Um, Both the general public and healthcare professionals are much more aware of MS than they are of DCM. So I guess the the next question, of course, is how can we do better? And this is something I put to Dr. James Milligan, who's a primary care specialist from Canada, a profession, of course, at the start of most diagnostic journeys. And I asked him exactly what are the early diagnostic challenges and how can we overcome them? What we do know in primary care is that it is not diagnosed well. It often takes a while. So we do need to do better, and and a lot of that is bringing awareness. Part of the reasons that that I sort of see as it being an issue to diagnose early is that from a patient perspective, it it often will have a, a fairly slow onset with maybe just a few intermittent symptoms and sometimes some vagueish symptoms, numbness or tingling. Uh, maybe intermittently, and and it doesn't always present the same way. It's often very heterogeneous. So um, it, it can often be brushed off by the patient, and they may take a while to um, to actually seek some help. And then at the same time, it could often be brushed off by the primary care provider. And many patients can just then slowly kind of deteriorate on their own if they don't have sort of a, 
abrupt worsening of the condition. The other thing that makes it somewhat difficult to diagnose is that there isn't always a clear consensus on what degenerative cervical myelopathy is or name for it or pattern of presentation and in turn then makes it difficult to to translate into a medical condition that practitioners know well. If we were able to map out better a bit of an algorithmic approach to things, I think it would be helpful. I think it is challenging, but it would be helpful. It's just a lack of recognition as well as to what can occur in the cervical spine or neck region in primary care sometimes. There's very little time given to this type of a thing so that primary care providers don't you know, have a good understanding. And a good example I sort of see with that, Ben, is that in our primary care clinic, we're associated with McMaster University, so we teach and have medical learners all the time, whether it be medical students or residents. And, you know, it's interesting, almost 90% of those learners who come, if they were to identify three things that they're the weakest at or maybe need improvement, it's they almost invariably say neurological conditions, musculoskeletal conditions, and dermatology. And, you know, when you're dealing with degenerative cervical myelopathy, you're really dealing with neurological and sort of musculoskeletal type things combined. So it really sort of hits that that weak spot in a lot of training. There isn't a student out there that can't name off the red flags, signs and symptoms for catequina. But if you ask them what kinds of signs and symptoms would be red flags at the cervical spine, most of them will actually go silent with that. It's just not really taught. There is quite a, a well-documented literature on the concept of neurophobia amongst medical professionals, the idea that they find the neurological disease is challenging and, and there's been a lot of concern about the teaching across, across neurological diseases. Yet these weaknesses still persist. Primary care practitioners are under pressure to remain up to date across a whole spectrum of diseases. They need to have that insight into lots of different conditions. So how can we improve the awareness about this disease? Well, I, th I think part of it is just trying to bring that to the forefront. So the more we get public awareness out there, I mean, that's super important. I mean, I think from a health system perspective as well, we need to target health managers and, and ministries and that sort of thing to recognize it. Because as you know, Ben, it causes a lot of morbidity and, and disability, but also there's a huge financial cost that is probably underestimated or not really known. I, I think the other thing that can be piggybacked with that is, you know, the fact that it's the leading cause of spinal cord injury in most areas to date. And so that kind of goes on with sort of the older population thing. And I think there's a lot of emphasis and a lot of focus on aging in the older population. So maybe there's an opportunity there to kind of piggyback into that and, and sort of raise that awareness a bit that way. But I think it has to be kind of a multifaceted approach. I was looking at the McMaster University School Medical School curriculum, and they spend 12 weeks dealing with neurological conditions, musculoskeletal conditions, and brain and behavior. So that's 12 weeks of dealing with everything neurological, musculoskeletal, and psychiatric, um, which just kind of shows like the pressure that is under in, in medical education to sort of cover everything. And it also shows that you obviously don't. So not only is it going to be important to kind of get into medical school, but then it is important to 
to educate people as they go through their career. And as you said, there's a lot of competing interests as we have to keep up to date with things. There's also been a bit of a transition with the advent of the internet and, and, and people seeking health information. I actually see these things as positive things. We can utilize social media and web platforms and that kind of thing to really drive that public awareness. I always think that the, the public and the patient is very powerful in the information they bring. And again, if we liken that to the spinal cord injured population, which both of us deal with quite a bit, that spinal cord injured patient population is often bringing 90% of the knowledge to a primary care provider because, again, it's an area that most primary care providers feel very uncomfortable with, not knowing how to manage a lot of the secondary conditions. And most would feel pretty good about patients bringing in some knowledge and where to access knowledge. So I think it is a powerful tool if you know used appropriately. Are there any additional challenges that, that, that you see in, in detecting this disease? The lack of access to primary care in a lot of jurisdictions can definitely delay an ability for somebody to see and, and uh, see a primary care provider and sometimes even affects sort of continuity of care um, if they're not seeing the same provider all the time. And, you know, the way that we operate in primary care as well is not always suitable to some of these things. So a lot of times people are booked for 10-minute appointments and it's often that patients don't necessarily bring up one thing in 10 minutes. So, you know, the neck pain and numbness that they're having in all extremities may be the third thing that they kind of bring up along the list of other stuff. And and so things kind of get missed. Sometimes the access to advanced imaging can be a stumbling block and also the access to specialists, whether it be neurologists or specialized surgeons who would deal with degenerative cervical myelopathy. So I think there's a few things all the way along the chain that we really need to really need to improve. So, so James, what would be your recommendation for addressing the top priority? Really trying to target primary care. And by primary care, I would not only say like family physicians, but also nurse practitioners and allied health people as well, which in some places would be a first contact. Sort of envision more tangibly with that might be developing a user-friendly tool in primary care that could help guide clinicians and also developing better communication between primary care and specialists. Right now, I think that there's a a big gap between uh, those two disciplines. So that was a really interesting interview with Dr. Milligan. I was wondering what your take-home messages were from from that, Ben. One of the things I was very interested in is the idea that people from his experience in spinal cord injury actually come to general practice with most of the information, 90% of the knowledge he described. And and the idea that actually, you know, it's not just about trying to educate primary care, it's about trying to educate more broadly than that and, and the general public. And that could perhaps have a, have a big difference because I know, general practice, primary care is under immense pressure to remain up to date with lots of different concepts and diseases and processes. And, and that's a real struggle to get you know, your messages heard in that environment. And actually, maybe maybe the general public is is, is somebody who should be um, you know, targeted with, with, with raising awareness campaigns. 
Definitely. And he wasn't trying to sort of put blame anywhere, but sort of saying that, you know, these appointments are very short. And actually, you know, if these symptoms are presented separately, perhaps the primary care specialist doesn't put them together. And in fact, if people were coming themselves sort of armed with more information and better knowledge of for example, DCM, perhaps those diagnoses would happen quicker. And that's very true. And you know, he, he talked a little bit about the benefits, perhaps, of, of the internet and those resources. And of course, myelopathy.org has become one of the, the leading resources for information on, on, on cervical myelopathy and providing that to people newly diagnosed or with suspected diagnosis. I recently spoke to Mark Cotter about this very topic, actually, about the start of myelopathy.org and, and the reasons behind that. Mark Quarter is an academic spine surgeon at the University of Cambridge, a member of the AO Spine Spinal Cord Injury Knowledge Forum and founder of the charity myelopathy.org. He's also a chief investigator of Recode DCM. Thank you for joining me, Mark. So I was wondering if you could tell us to start with a little bit about why you decided to set up a charity in the first place. So what's now myelopathy.org started as a simple information webpage for which we were able to secure the domain myelopathy.org. And my rationale of pu- putting this up was that I wanted to have a portal that I could point my own patients to in terms of information when I encountered them in, in my surgical practice. But I also uh, shaped it in such a way that we wanted to be able to interact uh, with individuals of, with myelopathy. And so we hosted some surveys which we then used to instruct um, some of the early research that we were doing. And while setting up the webpage, I met Ben, who just joined the department as a trainee neurosurgeon. And uh, together, we really you know, fleshed this out and, and created the infrastructure. At the same time, Ewan Sadler was setting up a Facebook webpage in which people with myelopathy would come together and exchange experience. And so we got to know about each other and we decided uh, to join forces. And this led to quite an increase in terms of the numbers of individuals on the online platforms, a lot more traffic to the actual website. There's definitely thousands of followers now that are directed to our website and and hence the charity and and starting to learn a bit more about what we're doing. Myelopathy seems to be incredibly common and very often not recognised. Sometimes it is mistaken uh, for a consequence of age. Um, But of course, you know, just because you're getting older, you don't have to lose your balance or the coordination of your limbs. Just think about uh, all the conductors who create tremendous music in their late 80s as a nice visual example. Other conditions that are much less common, for example, uh, like traumatic spinal cord injury, get all the press, whereas myelopathy doesn't something that we find we're tackling with with the charity because when it comes to the point of trying to raise funding of course it's very difficult when people have never even heard of the condition. It's not only in the research field um, but also as you know from your interactions with people with myelopathy they face problems when they go and ask for the support of social services 
you know, how often do I have to write a letter to social services explaining, you know, the impact uh, of uh, myelopathy from the outside? It's not like you, you're missing a limb, but uh, on the inside, it has actually one of the most devastating impacts on quality of life that has been recorded in any chronic condition. So we need awareness amongst those healthcare professionals like GPs that make diagnosis or should be able to help and facilitate the diagnosis of myelopathy. There's uh, huge delays in terms of when individuals are getting the diagnosis and that leads to delays with regards to treatment and that translates into worse outcomes. So I think raising awareness or lack of awareness is really one of the key fundamental problems that we need to tackle. And it's very important and also exciting that this emerges as the number one priority. Initially, the charity started as, as a web page. And what this is, is actually a fantastic resource for education. There's a huge amount of information on there at the moment. And we're currently working on upgrading that, making that information a bit more accessible to people that might be coming to us for the first time. We're bringing in a, a whole new section, which will be targeted towards healthcare professionals, although, of course, anybody can look at that. And we're hoping there to just sort of start this this process of rolling out more information to healthcare professionals about the condition. So I think, you know, the charity is front and foremost in this priority, actually, of raising awareness. In order to raise awareness, you need people who advocate or institutions that advocate. Uh, and I think the, the, the charity is, is a fabulous catalyst because it really unites the voice of people that, that are suffering from this condition. And as we've seen, it's inspired the EO spine to think uh, deeper about this condition and to facilitate this process. Uh, and I hope that advocacy will lead to change in terms of the care pathways that we have uh, currently may inspire scientists or researchers to come up with better ways of diagnosing myelopathy. So, Mark, what would be your recommendations for different ways to answer priority one? You know what, Michelle, I think the most important thing is that people come together. And that process, I feel, has very much begun and has been emphasised and elevated during the RECODE project, where we really connected healthcare professionals, charity members, and tried to come up with what's important. And at the same time, that buy-in, I think, has spread and helped everyone to better communicate and hopefully we can now extend this beyond uh, that small group that met and even the larger group that provided input and make a case for Mark. So it was really nice to hear from Mark exactly how myelopathy.org came about. You know, without that partnership from myelopathy.org, this, this question would never have got into the top top 10 actually i think actually in the in the shortlisting process it was ranked 26th by the spinal surgeons who participated in the initial survey so i think it really shows how important that coming together really is and and hopefully this is the beginning of really starting to raise awareness and of course mark touched on sort of terminology and and you know having a term for dcm branding is is so important in everything if you want to be heard i mean probably got a lot of 
experience to take from a more commercial sector, haven't we? But I mean, at the moment, there's so many different terms in use. It's no wonder the general profession is confused. And uh, I think, you know, one of the objectives of Recode is to try and agree what we're going to call this disease going forward. And I think that's going to hopefully help help this process as well. And also, I think finally, he was talking about, you know, bringing people together. And I think that's really, you know, what, what the RICO process has done as well as the charity, bringing people together from different perspectives, listening to them um, about what's important to them. No doubt. This isn't a challenge that can be solved by, by one person, I don't think. No, definitely not. All that remains to be said for this episode is to thank our various guests Thank you very much to Dr. Michael Failings, Tammy Blizzard, Dr. James Milligan, and of course, Dr. Mark Cotter for joining us. The podcast was researched by Elizabeth Roberts and produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. There's lots more information to be found about the AOSpine Recode DCM process on their website, aospine.org forward slash recode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with the next item, which is number two in our top 10 myelopathy research priorities from AO Spine, and that's natural history. So don't miss it. In fact, to make sure you don't miss it, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And until then, goodbye. Goodbye.